Welcome to the Faith Today podcast, conversations inspired by Canada's Christian magazine. But it took time before they could find their way back to church. But I think for some of these individuals, it will be a long time if ever they go back inside of a church. I'm Karen Stiller. Today on the Faith Today podcast, we're talking about a topic that a lot of us have on our minds. How does clergy sexual abuse keep on happening? How can it be stopped in its tracks? How can we best help victims? We also remind ourselves and you that for every church leader who abuses, so many more don't. But those who do commit such a violence and they do so much damage, all our hearts ache. Our guest is involved with the Meeting House situation, so we're super grateful that Melody Bissell took the time to so carefully address our questions. Melody Bissell is the president of Plan to Protect, which helps 7,500-plus volunteer-driven Canadian organizations provide abuse prevention and protection, including, of course, churches. Melody is also a victim's advocate and did her doctoral studies at Wycliffe College on the healing of victim survivors. Although we won't be speaking directly or in detail about current Canadian situations, you need to know Melody is involved with the Meeting House case as a victim advocate. I also have Alana Reimer here with me. Alana is editor of EFC's Love is Moving magazine, and she's helping to steer the very early days of a possible Christian Women's Council in Canada. She's a writer and a resource and content coordinator for the EFC, and probably the only other person I know who tears up almost automatically when talking about this kind of stuff. So Melody and Alana, we're so happy to have you here today, even though we wish we didn't have to keep talking about this subject. Hi, Karen. Hi, Alana. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Honestly, one of the first things I thought of when Karen asked me was, oh, no, I hope I don't cry. So it's funny you mentioned that. <laughs> I know. But you know what? It's okay. Like, I, I think you, actually Alana and I have emailed each other before in meetings where we're talking about this topic and one of us tears up and it's like, why isn't everyone crying? Um, you know, these are really hard topics. So, mm-hmm. Melody, we're going to just like jump right into the deep end. And I think when people hear the term victim advocacy, we may think we know what it is, but we'd love to have you tell us what is victim advocacy and what does it look like at the meeting house? I mean, we'd just love to hear that from you. Thanks, Karen. It is honestly one of the greatest privileges of my life to be a victim advocate. I'm an independent third-party victim advocate, and I can tell you that every report that I receive, I take seriously. I am there for the victim. It's a privilege to steward each one of these stories. And I'm with you. There are many times that tears come to my eyes as I hear them share their stories with me. It is my responsibility to listen and hear their story and to document their stories. Um, And then once I've documented them, I send them back to the victim and ask them to review what I've written. And part of them telling their story, I ask, do you have any questions at all that you would like to ask the church? And what is your desired outcome? So once I receive their permission, I send the report with their permission to the overseers of the church or in other cases where I've been a victim advocate to the board of the senior leadership. 
And then I continue to follow up with the victim, encourage them, support them, make modifications to questions that they have. And then I often will support the victim as they get the responses back from the organization. How likely, Melody, is it for a victim that you might be working with to, well, I guess, A, trust the church and the process, trust that they are going to be taken care of, and are they seeking or receiving counseling services from the church in which they were abused? Is that a thing that happens? It is very difficult for them to trust the church. It's even hard for me to gain their trust. I don't take their trust lightly because I know that they've uh, they've been hurt by the church. They've been hurt by the organization I'm representing. And so I have to gain that trust with them. And then I really appreciate when the client that I'm working with, and in this case with the meeting house, they've been very generous with offering counseling. They know these individuals are hurting And they've been generous to offer counseling to the victims and the people that come forward with concerns. So it does take time for them to gain that trust. And if ever, right, if ever they can gain that trust. But we make baby steps forward and see some progress. And that's a win. Is is part of the process for the reason why there's that lack of trust or that fear is that they don't think they're going to be believed? Do you see that that's part of this picture? They have been silenced. And I find this not, again, not just with this current situation, but even through my doctoral research, victims have been often silenced. That's part of being victimized by someone where there has been a power differential. They've been told they can't talk about it or no one will believe them. And even when there has been someone like a friend that has tried to advocate on their behalf or someone who has discerned that there's something amiss with the culture that have raised concern, they've been silenced. So yes, there is a fear there that they won't be believed, but there also is a fear. And in some cases, they believe that the overseers or the board or even God has allowed this to happen and that there's more than one party involved here, that people have accommodated this and allowed the abuse to happen. Melody, it feels like where there's smoke, there's fire. And it feels like when we put pastors or leaders of any kind up on this weird Christian celebrity pedestal that we seem to do, that problems come. They may not come right away, but it just does not seem to work out. Uh, Can you speak to that, Melody? Well, we've talked about this before, haven't we, Karen, about this whole celebrity mentality. And where leaders that come to that position, they think they're, you know, too cool for rules or the rules or the policies apply to everybody but them and that they can make exceptions. And because in many cases they have their friends or um, people that have been really impacted by their ministry as part of their boards, those individuals aren't asking the tough questions. 
So yes, often the culture of the organization just becomes such that nobody's questioning this weird behavior of this individual. Do you think that part of that is not being comfortable talking about sex in general in terms of our leaders? Because like there's accountability there, right? That involves asking potentially awkward, hard questions, as you said. I wonder if that's something you've noticed is just this unwillingness to address that particular topic with the accountability structures that these leaders have around them. Um, It's really interesting. I think that boards are often very hesitant to ask tough questions. Some of the pastors I respect the most have said to their boards, there is no topic that is off the table. I want you to ask me questions about addictions in my life or if I'm engaged in pornography and how healthy is my marriage. So yes, I think board members are often hesitant. They feel that they can't ask those questions or they don't feel comfortable having that conversation. However, what ends up happening is we're hearing about these leaders or these people that have committed sexual harassment, sexual abuse, clergy misconduct, and their whole life seems to be surrounded with conversations about sex, and sex is very much part of their their lived experience where they're talking about it with everybody. The questions I often hear is, why are pastors allowed to have these conversations in counseling sessions or one-on-one with congregants or parishioners. But when you come to social workers and counselors, a counselor would lose their license if they started sharing intimate details about their sexual relationship with their spouse or their partner. Why is that same accountability not in place with clergy? So I think denominations and seminaries also have a responsibility here. Yeah, that is that is really interesting. Uh, and pastors knowing when to send people to an actual therapist must be part of this too, and an important part of training that maybe seminaries need to pay attention to. Absolutely. I This came out in my doctoral thesis and it comes out in almost every case where I'm a victim advocate, is so much of this happens within a counseling setting. And I do not believe pastors have had the training to be able to provide this level of counseling. And there should be clear policies and guidelines in place to say you can do pastoral care, but counseling for these issues must be referred to a professional. Melody, does this happen, if if you can speak to this, um, more likely in a big church or a small church? Or I feel like small churches, it would be harder to get away with this. And yet the pastor in a small church might find themselves in these more intense counseling situations. Yeah. No segment of our society is immune to this. And no size of church is immune to this. Last night I was talking to someone from a very small church in a very rural community um, where this was happening. Um, But then we also hear about these mega churches 
where it really is very prevalent in so many cases where there's very little accountability and supervision and um, no one is, people are blowing the whistle. I think that's so important for us to remember here. There are people that are blowing the whistle and raising concerns and they're bringing these concerns to the senior pastor, but the senior pastor is shutting them down and silencing them and saying, oh, you know, you don't know what you're talking about or you're crazy or whatever. So I think we need to listen to some of these people that have the gift of discernment and the gift of prophecy and are calling us to holiness. You mentioned, Melody, a scenario in which a pastor or leader would say to their board, ask me anything, ask me the tough questions, which I think that is so helpful and so important and actually really practical. But it, it's a reminder also that there are a lot of good pastors out there. <laughs> and, and I think that's really important to say out loud. And also, I wondered, though, if you could speak to how the board vibe is essential and important, but what other ways does a pastor keep themselves holy and healthy and protect themselves from crossing lines. Can you give us some insight into that? Well, certainly a healthy marriage is really key to that, you know, where the pastor speaks with respect and love and appreciation for his wife, invites his wife into some of these opportunities of doing pastoral care. I think that would be a key way that they can help prevent and protect themselves, to have accountability partners who are asking them tough questions, to work within teamwork, um, I think is also an important way to protect yourself. And honestly, I think in so many of these cases, to keep very, very, very short accounts when it comes to sin. Like we need, you know, David, yes, he sinned. We read about David's sin in scripture, but David also speaks about in Psalm 52, where he talks about the sin that weighed heavy on his heart, where he felt like it was eating him away. And we need to also remember that prayer that says, search me, O God, know my heart and see if there's any wicked way in me. And when there is sin in our life, we need to fess up immediately and not just pray and ask for forgiveness, but to be accountable to those like our board members and tell them what we did. And that may mean that we have to take a step back and take a sabbatical and get our life right with the Lord before we continue to serve in the leadership position. It strikes me as there's this sense of a desire to protect an identity, right? A reputation, a church, that kind of thing, which is what maybe presents, prevents people from coming forward with this. But I think we would probably agree that actually, as you say, having that short account and coming forward and dealing with it and addressing it, even publicly coming forward when something does happen, is actually better for the life of the church, obviously, from the point of view of doing what's right. I wonder if you have a story of, of seeing that happen and maybe debunking that fear that the end is has come when we have to admit that someone messed up because that isn't actually then the, the end. That's that's perhaps the beginning of something really new and healthy and good. 
I mean, the best example I can think of, and it goes way back probably before the time of many of our listeners today, and that is Gordon MacDonald. He was a pastor who committed adultery. He came forward right away to his board and to his family, admitted his failure, took time off from his ministry for a number of years, and did not go back into that big public church environment where he was, but he just continued to serve quietly and continue to impact and influence people, but from his brokenness. And I think that that's what we need to remember. I This has to become part of our DNA. Yes, we are sinners. Yes, we do fail. We do make mistakes. But just like with Canada and the residential schools, this is part of our history now. We have to own this. We are Canadians. And we have to continue to remember humbly the failures of our past. And I'm hoping where there have been failures, that these churches and ministries will now let this become part of their their DNA part of who they are, and they speak from that place of humility and really care for the oppressed. Melody, in the May-June issue of Faith Today, you wrote a great article for us about sort of tips and 10 things churches can do to be safe for victim survivors. But you used the term secondhand victims, and you named communities of faith as one of those. So the actual congregations who have to deal with the shock, the grief, the dismay, the sorrow, and I guess, decide to stay and decide to rebuild. I wonder if you could speak to that, like just how difficult that must be for churches. And what are some healthy ways the congregation can start to move forward? It is hard not to become cynical. We're in a cancer culture, aren't we? That when we see that there's failure, someone has disappointed us, we want to cancel our direct giving, we want to cancel our attendance, we want to walk away. And that's understandable. People are deeply hurting, especially if they had put someone up on a pedestal. And the experience of that victim isn't the experience of everyone. So here this individual has really significantly impacted your spiritual life and walk, and you love your church, but then all of a sudden you hear about moral failure, abuse, injury, harm, suffering, and you're like, I'm out of here. I don't want to become part of this community anymore. This is often when the church needs to come together. And as people say, this is one person can't fix this. One volunteer board can't fix this cultural problem. This is going to take us all coming together and working together to repair what one or two or a few people did to cause harm. I'm thinking also about the divisions that must arise in a congregation. I think you alluded to that melody where you have some people who are like, this person saved my life, you know, with their teaching or with Mm -hmm. their book or with their 
counseling. And I just can't believe it. Like, and I definitely saw that in these recent happenings with comments on social media and so on. And I'd like us to go back to the King David syndrome. (laughs) You mentioned the example of King David, which of course is a beautiful, powerful story and an excellent example. But I think I see it being thrown around sometimes like, well, King David, look at King David, like it's almost like a some sort of a tacit permission or something. King David was a man after God's own heart. And he was a real reprobate, like, it's almost like an excuse that's offered, which makes me sad. And I don't think David would want that or like that. So I guess I'm asking you just to maybe to go even a little deeper on the divisions or how to heal. We don't want to fester in division, but how churches can heal those divisions that can arise. Like, I'm sure we need to listen well to each other and give each other space. This is not the time to to fight, and it's not the time to throw stones. And personally, I don't think it's the time to defend someone. I really don't. We're not doing anyone a benefit if we defend someone that has admitted that they have failed. What I love about King David is he admitted where he failed, and he was humble. And David doesn't come across like he's a victor here. It was God that said, hey, this is a man after my own heart. It wasn't David saying, hey, I'm number one in God's book. He was humble. And I think that for us to be really united here is to take a position of humility and to be a learner. What can we learn from this? In all these situations, until it goes to a court case, or if it doesn't go to a court case, we don't know the balance of truth and falsehood. In my role as a victim advocate, I take their stories and I am there for the victim. I don't question, is this person telling me the truth or not? They're telling me their story and it causes me in most cases to weep. But that's my role as a victim advocate. I think the rest of us need to just be really humble and say, what can we learn from this? And what is God saying to me? And then to care for all the people that are involved, because we all need love and grace in situations like this. I want to celebrate that version of King David more, the humble one. Absolutely. So when we're thinking about the victims, they're so courageous to come forward. I mean, I can't even imagine how frightening that is. And I think you've you've shown through what you've said so far, Melody, some of what can help. And that is, you know, obviously listening and documenting the story and making sure it's right, making sure they're being heard properly. What can the average, you know, Joe or Joanne in the pew do to help a victim survivor through these kinds of things? Be a friend. The healing journey of abuse is a long, long, long journey. And I think the thing that strikes me the most is how much spiritual damage has been done, not only psychologically and emotionally, and it's impacted their lives and their relationships and their careers, their trust in humankind, 
But spiritually, it has caused almost like soul murder. And I think that's the thing that I find so painful to watch and observe. And I believe that what we should be doing is praying for their healing, praying that they will see glimpses of hope and goodness, and that they will be able to see that there are good people who are really deeply concerned about them. To me, that's a win when they can begin to see that. But it's going to take a long time to find that healing. I believe in a God that heals. And I just pray that they will see that people are concerned about their healing. So being a listening ear and and being present with them, is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah. And just role modeling healthy habits. And I think spiritual disciplines and inviting people into some of those spiritual disciplines, not inviting them back to church, because for many of these people, they never want to enter back into a church building again. Never. Um, but we are the church, right? Um, and to go for a walk in nature with someone, to encourage them to start to journal or listen to music, to be with friends, I think that's where the healing begins to happen. You know, I feel like we think that the be-all and end-all is to get the person back to church. And I, I, I'm, I recognize that in myself, that impulse, that we need to get them back in community and that that would show healing. But I'm guessing for some that will never be the case. Is that right, Melody? Or have you seen people be successfully integrated back into church, wanting to be there, benefiting from being there? Tell us about that. Well, my doctoral thesis really focused on the spiritual healing of victim survivors of abuse. And one of the criteria was that they self-attest to have founding that spiritual healing. And so almost all the victims I spoke to for my thesis were back in church all but one. And um, But it took time, and it took finding the right church community that was going to be welcoming, that was going to be safe, um, that was going to really role model to them healthy relationships before they could find them their way back to church. But I think for some of these individuals, it will be a long time if ever they go back inside of a church. That's why it's so important that we respond immediately when we hear about abuse and we have safe places to report abuse. Because if we can respond appropriately right when we learn about that abuse and it happens, then we wouldn't be facing some of the things we are now where people have walked away from the church 10, 15 years ago and they feel like the church covered it up, hid it, didn't respond appropriately, cared more for the perpetrator than they did the victim. So I think our response is so important. What kind of, I mean, you're the president of Plan to Protect, like I've been through the Plan to Protect training, and I'm going to be completely (laughs) transparent here, Melody. Sometimes I'm like, oh, come on, let me go in the nursery. 
like this mom needs help. You know, I, I feel the temptation sometimes to bend the plan to protect rules because it's easier and it feels like we're being mean and that it's hard to create community naturally when you have to follow all these rules. So I, I confess all that. I still follow the rules. I do it. But it's plan to protect and programs like it. They're not a guarantee, obviously, that no one will ever be abused again. But tell me the role, tell us the role that those programs do play in the life of the church? No, oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. One pastor said in his training, and I have quoted him so many times since, he said, plan to protect is not about us not trusting you. It's about our community trusting us. And I believe plan to protect is not something we do so that we can do ministry. But plan to protect is a ministry in itself. It is a ministry to children, to young people, to protect their spiritual lives and their well-being. It's a ministry to parents and grandparents and aunties and uncles. It's a ministry to victim survivors to say that we never want what happened to you to happen to anyone else. And we want you to know that we're putting a safeguarding measures in place because we don't want that to happen on our watch. I also think it's a ministry to offenders, that restorative justice to say, yes, we want you in our church, but we're going to put strong barriers and parameters in place so that this does not happen here um, in our church or in our ministry. So the perspective that you take to safeguarding makes all the difference. And it is easy to make some of those, you know, want to let down your guard and think, oh, it's not going to happen here. But it does happen and no church is immune to it. And I think by having those measures in place, we are continuing to reinforce that we want this to be a safe ministry location. I like the way you express that as a way of showing the heart and the intention and putting something solid and concrete behind that. And I think policy and having structures like that is probably one of the most concrete examples of that. I wondered if you could talk about any other examples that come to mind that are perhaps not as solid as a policy, but other postures or ways that a church can demonstrate and show perhaps past victims, anyone in their church, perhaps women right now who are very discouraged and wondering if this is a safe place, what other um, postures, positions, things can a church do as well as something like plan to protect to show that they are a space that's aware of this and is standing against it and trying to model a different way? Great question. I think we need to give voice to victims when they're ready to talk and tell their story. We should not be saying to them, hey, um, no one really wants to hear your story. Or maybe that's a little bit too much information to tell people. We need to give them voice and let them share their stories and find places where they can speak into the culture and the concerns that they have. I also think we need really safe places for people to raise their concerns. We need someone who will be that victim advocate for them, that they know that they can call or reach out and email someone, and someone is going to take their story seriously and not question um, the story. 
but respond and document and make sure that they get a response immediately. No one should have to wait, you know, months and months or even weeks to get a response from a board. They should be able to hear immediately. We receive your concern. We've received your report and we are going to respond and we're going to take this concern seriously. That's a, a good point about the victim advocate. Is that like, can a church have a designated victim advocate? Is that someone in the church or does it have to be outside the church? It could be either. I know of some churches that they've had people trained to be victim advocates. You want the right person. I'm a big believer that a victim advocate has to be able to have the ear of the board, but also be trusted by the victim. There's a balance to that, right? You can have a victim advocate that's as angry as a victim and cause a lot of chaos and alienate the board from that individual where they don't want to even listen to the person. And you're not going to make any progress if that happens. So you want someone who's got both the ear of the board, but also really is compassionate and caring and will take that report and believe that person. Melody, no one would ever well, that I don't think no no one would ever describe you as angry. You exude a calm and a compassion and, and a love. And I'm wondering, you have heard so many sad, bad stories and maybe seen the worst of the church, but hopefully also the best of the church. And as we end, could you tell us what keeps your faith alive and what keeps your belief in the church alive? Oh, Karen, you're being very kind. I'm sure there's many people that can would say that I can get angry, and there are times I get angry, and hopefully it's righteous anger, but there's sometimes that I grow weary, and um, when you're working around the clock and working night and day and um, you're carrying some of these burdens, it can really wear on you. For me right now, I am so grateful for the people that email me and tell me they're praying for me. In the last six months, I've had so many people from my past say that they've seen my name or they've heard um, what I've been doing and they're praying for me. I have a friend out in BC that tells me he's praying for me all the time um, and has sent me messages to assure me of his prayers. I have 50 prayer partners every Monday that get an email from me that I don't share any private information with them, but they pray for me every week. And I'm so grateful for that. My husband is a pastor and he's probably my biggest cheerleader, Karen. And he he said to me, Mel, promise me that before you log on to any Zoom call or phone a victim that you'll spend 10 or 15 minutes in prayer before you do that. And so that has fed my soul and helped me through this time. Music and nature and my grandson, videos from my grandson, and that all feeds my soul and helps me survive these challenging days. Melody, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. 
Thank you, Alana. Thank you for listening. Check out more podcasts and subscribe to Faith Today magazine for free at faithtoday.ca. This podcast is produced by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. If you enjoyed it, please rate or share it.